1: Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.
2: Thanks for downloading episode 82 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, last week we talked about how the Confederates came to be at Columbus, Kentucky, which was a spot of important high ground on the stretch of the Mississippi River between Cairo, Illinois, and Memphis, Tennessee. Confederate Generals Gideon Pillow and Leonidas Polk thought that by moving north in September 1861 and seizing Columbus, despite Kentucky's neutrality, they were acting to save the Mississippi River for the Confederacy. They were certain the Federals were about to descend the Great River and use it as an avenue of invasion to strike at the South. Pillow and Polk saw the seizure of Columbus as a preemptive measure— They thought that if they seized that spot of important high ground and then built fortifications and emplaced cannon there to dominate the Mississippi, they would stop the Yankees from descending the river. Tracy
2: and I want to spend just a bit of time here in the first part of this show, let's call it part one of this episode, but spend it talking about the importance of the Mississippi River in the Western Theater of the Civil War. It's probably hard for us today to appreciate just how important the Mississippi was to Americans in the mid-19th century, because back then it loomed large in the American psyche as not only a vast artery of commerce and communication, but also as a symbol.
0: For those Americans living west of the Appalachians, in the extensive watershed of the Mississippi, the river was important as a trading artery, This became even truer after regular steamboat travel began on the Mississippi. The steamboat era reached its peak in the 1850s. Between 1859 and 1860, more than 2 million tons of goods were shipped down the river to the port of New Orleans, amounting to nearly $300 million of property. From Cincinnati, 206 steamboats put into New Orleans that year. Over 500 steamboats arrived from Pittsburgh and almost that many from St. Louis. Because so much of their farm produce and other products went south on the Mississippi to New Orleans for shipment outside the country, for many Northerners, especially those living in the states of the Old Northwest, support for the war on the Confederacy had as much to do with securing possession of the Mississippi as it did with preserving the Union.
2: And here, into the Old Northwest, we're lumping the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and we'll even throw in the northwestern part of Minnesota. But anyway, it's been pointed out that by the time of the beginning of the Civil War, railroads had started to erode the Mississippi's importance as the linchpin of western commerce. And that's true, because in the north, railroad lines running east-west, linking the old northwest with the northeast, had started to divert some of the commerce that used to flow south to New Orleans. But in 1861, the Mississippi, as a symbol, still held such powerful sway over the American psyche that when the southern states seceded, the very thought that the Great River would be closed to free navigation sent a wave of dismay and anger through the north but especially for those Northerners living in the states of the Old Northwest, they viewed the closing of the Mississippi by the Confederacy as an assault on some of their most cherished fundamental values. We really can't stress enough that back in the olden days, especially for those Northerners living in the states of the Old Northwest, for them the Mississippi River wasn't just an avenue of trade. It was a symbol of progress, regional pride, and national sovereignty. And because of that, because of the special importance they attached to the Mississippi, Northwesterners had a special reason for making war on the Confederacy.
0: And then, just as an aside, but we wanted to point out that at the beginning of the Civil War, Two men who had personal experience with the importance of the Mississippi, both in terms of its real value and its symbolism, were Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was not only from the state of Mississippi, but his cotton plantation, Briarfield, was located at Davis Bend, a spot right on the river just south of Vicksburg.
2: And then Abraham Lincoln was not only from Illinois, one of those states of the Old Northwest, but you guys will remember how, as a young man, Lincoln actually made two journeys down the Mississippi, both times taking flatboats on the thousand mile journey down the Great River all the way to New Orleans.
0: Southern fears that the Yankees intended to use the Mississippi River as an avenue of invasion were not baseless, but were actually well-grounded in fact. Long-time listeners to the podcast will recall how Winfield Scott's so-called Anaconda Plan proposed strangling the Confederacy by using a unique combination of seacoast blockade and riverborne movement. Scott thought a blockade of southern ports would cut off the rebels from outside help while quote, a powerful movement down the Mississippi to the ocean, end quote, would sever the Confederacy in half. The old general in chief believed that his plan would force the rebels to negotiate an end to hostilities, quote, with less bloodshed than any other plan. End quote.
2: Scott thought that his proposed movement down the Mississippi could be accomplished by steam powered gunboats escorting a fleet of transports carrying sixty thousand soldiers. As the riverborne force moved southward, he envisioned the gunboats blasting away any resistance, while garrisons were dropped off to hold key points along the river. Scott's plan, mostly because of the time it would take to accomplish, was ridiculed at the start of the conflict, when just about everyone fully expected the war would be over quickly, after one great battle would decide the matter and crush the rebellion. But after that naive expectation was proven wrong and the North rolled up its sleeves to fight the long, knockdown, down drag-out fight that would actually be needed to win the war, key elements of old Winfield Scott's plan ended up being incorporated into the Union's blueprint for victory.
0: In fact, by June of 1861, Joseph Totten, the chief engineer of the Federal Armies, reported that at least 250 steamers capable of carrying 75,000 troops were available on the Ohio River alone. Another 150 boats could be found at St. Louis. He suggested, though, that a flotilla of 10 to 20 gunboats was needed to support riverborne operations. Totten pointed out that while the gunboats would be owned by the government, of course, the large numbers of steamboats needed to transport soldiers and supplies could be leased through contracts with their civilian owners.
2: The first gunboats to be completed and deployed were the so-called timberclads. The government purchased three side-wheeler steamboats in Cincinnati, and in June, work began to convert them into warships. Besides mounting cannon, they were completely sheathed with oak planks five inches thick. The three transformed ships, named the Lexington, the Tyler, and the Conestoga, were completed by the end of the summer. And in November, when Grant attacks Belmont, two of the Federal timberclads, the Tyler and the Lexington, will escort the steamboats acting as troop transports.
0: While the timberclads would provide invaluable service during the war, their oak armor was still vulnerable to cannon fire. So the Federals also began work converting two riverboats, the Essex and the Benton, into ironclad gunboats. And then starting in August at shipyards near St. Louis and at Mound City, Illinois, the keels were laid for seven new ironclads built expressly to battle the Confederate shore batteries along the western rivers. Built from plans drawn up by naval constructor Samuel Pook, those seven ironclads were often called Pook's Turtles, and they would prove to be the backbone of the Federal's Brownwater Navy.
2: And then the last thing we wanted to bring up in this first part of the episode is the military significance of the Mississippi River. During the course of the podcast, as we go through the Civil War with you guys, You'll probably get tired of our suggestions to pull out a map and look at something or other for yourselves, but since Tracy and I can only provide the audio portion of this experience, you'll have to take care of the visual part for yourself. Anyway, if you pull out a map and follow the course of the Mississippi, its strategic military significance is actually pretty obvious.
0: Basically, y'all can see that if the Yankees could seize control of the Mississippi from Cairo, Illinois, all the way down to New Orleans, then they'd cut the Confederacy in two, severing Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas from the rest of the South. By driving a wedge between those two segments of the Confederacy, the Federals would shut off the movement of supplies which flowed from the west to the east. And then it's worth noting that as the blockade on southern ports tightened, the across-river commerce also included goods from overseas that sidestepped the blockade by coming into the Mexican port of Matamoros and then through Texas.
2: So securing the Mississippi and splitting the Confederacy in two was one of the North's major strategic goals from the early days of the Civil War. But achieving that goal will take much blood, toil, sweat, and tears, and won't happen until July of 1863, when the Confederate strong points at Vicksburg and Port Hudson will finally fall to the Union armies. Anyway, we just wanted you guys to look at a map so you can appreciate the strategic value of the Mississippi for both the North and the South. For the North, control of the Great River was an important military objective, and for the South, defending the Mississippi was a crucial aspect of the whole Confederate war effort. Thus ends Part 1 of this episode about the Mississippi River. On to Part 2, the Battle of Belmont.
3: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your
1: podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures— Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come visit Ancient Egypt and experience a legendary culture.
0: He said last week that with regard to Kentucky, after the Confederates seized Columbus and Grant moved to secure Paducah, there were no other immediate military moves for a while. But that soon changed. That was because after the moves to seize Columbus and to secure Paducah, command shakeups took place in both the Confederate and Union camps, and a shift in the strategic situation took place as well.
2: The Southern command change took place when Jefferson Davis placed Albert Sidney Johnston in command of Confederate forces in the West. When the Civil War began, Johnston had been out in California commanding the the Department of the Pacific, but when the 58-year-old Johnston, a Texan, learned that the Lone Star State had left the Union and joined the Confederacy, he resigned his commission and started off on an epic trek back east. Unable to travel by ship back to New York because of an arrest order issued by the government, Johnston and a small group of other Southerners crossed the Arizona and New Mexico territories on horseback in midsummer and arrived in Confederate Texas in early August. From there, Johnston went on to Virginia, where he met Jefferson Davis in Richmond the first week of September. Davis and Albert Sidney Johnston were old comrades in arms. Having first met at Transylvania College in Kentucky, and then they were both cadets at West Point, and then they served together in the Black Hawk and Mexican American Wars. And so when Johnston finally arrived in Richmond, really the only question in the Confederate president's mind was just where to best use his old friend.
0: And here Rich and I want to point something out, because it can be a bit confusing, especially for those who don't know much about the Civil War. But there were actually two Confederate generals named Johnston. There was Joseph E. Johnston, whom we've already talked about, especially with regard to the First Battle of Manassas. And then there was Albert Sidney Johnston, who is really just now entering our story.
2: Right. And since Joseph Johnston had already been placed in command of Confederate forces in the East, in Virginia, Davis sent his friend Albert Sidney Johnston, to lead the Confederate forces in the West. And there Johnston replaced Leonidas Polk in command of the huge, sprawling Department Number 2. And by the way, Polk, the Bishop General, had already realized he was in way over his head in trying to exercise command of the entire Western theater of the war, and he'd already asked to be replaced as Department Commander. And so Albert Sidney Johnston, who was commissioned one of only five full generals in the Confederate service, set out for Tennessee.
0: But by the time Johnston arrived in Nashville on September 14th, he found that Kentucky's neutrality was already a thing of the past, as a result of Polk's move to seize Columbus and fortify it. Polk's decision to take Columbus pushed Kentucky off the fence and into the Union camp So, faced with the situation as he found it upon his arrival in Tennessee, Johnston soon made moves to secure the southern one-third of the Bluegrass State for the Confederacy. He ordered troops in East Tennessee to move up and cover the Cumberland Gap. He also sent a force north from Nashville to seize Bowling Green, Kentucky. Then, to defend against federal thrust up the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, fortifications had been started on those waterways. And over on the Mississippi, of course, there was the Confederate position at Columbus.
2: And so Johnston established a several hundred mile long defensive line across southern Kentucky, anchoring his right flank at the Cumberland Gap, covering his center by occupying Bowling Green, and guarding his left flank with Polk's fortress at Columbus. There were those, such as Tennessee Governor Isham Harris, who pressed Johnston to seize the entire state of Kentucky, wanting him to push all the way up to the Ohio River. But Johnston had far too few troops and resources to contemplate such an ambitious move. In fact, with the few troops and resources he had on hand, he'd be hard-pressed to even cover the defensive line he'd established across southern Kentucky. In his whole sprawling department, Johnston only had perhaps 40,000 troops ready for service.
0: And then that fall, around about the time that Grant was moving to attack Belmont, there were also command shakeups taking place on the Union side of the lines. Robert Anderson, the hero of Fort Sumter and a native Kentuckian, had been put in command of the Federal's Department of Kentucky, which in August was renamed the Department of the Cumberland. This area of operations encompassed the region east of the Cumberland River, but west of the Appalachians. But when Anderson asked to be relieved because of his poor health, William Tecumseh Sherman was assigned to replace him. In his book, Decision in the Heartland, The Civil War in the West, Stephen Woodworth explains that, quote, The brother of a prominent Republican senator, Sherman was a strategic genius, but was high-strung, nervous, and talkative. He also found newspaper reporters annoying and denounced them as meddling busybodies. When he stated in his usual forceful manner the as-yet-little-suspected fact that it was going to take hundreds of thousands of men to put down the rebellion, the reporters decided it was payback time and solemnly informed their readers that General Sherman had gone insane. In early November 1861, Lincoln replaced him with Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell, end quote.
2: And then, as if it isn't confusing enough that the Department of Kentucky had been renamed the Department of the Cumberland, the area of operations was renamed again, and now it was the Department of the Ohio. So Buell was the new commander of the Department of the Ohio. Anyway, over in the adjoining Department of the West, with headquarters in St. Louis, You guys already know about the hot water that John C. Fremont got into with the Lincoln administration, and so about the same time Buell took command of the Department of the Ohio, a new commander was also assigned to the Department of the West. There, once Lincoln sacked the incompetent Fremont, the president replaced him with Henry W. Halleck. So got all that? Basically, just remember that in the fall of 1861, there are command shakeups and strategic shifts taking place in the Western Theater of the War. On the Southern side, Albert Sidney Johnston assumes overall command of the Confederacy's huge, sprawling Department No. 2. And on the Union side, the theater command is split as Don Carlos Buell is assigned to command the Department of the Ohio and Henry Halleck replaces Fremont as commander of the Department of the West. Meanwhile, with Kentucky's neutrality a thing of the past, the Union moves to solidify its control of the northern two-thirds of the state, while Johnston secures the southern third of the Bluegrass State for the Confederacy.
0: So in the fall of 1861, it was in the midst of all that that Brigadier General Ulysses Grant made his attack on the Confederate outpost at Belmont, Missouri, which was just across the Mississippi River from the fortified enemy position at Columbus, Kentucky. As y'all recall, at the end of August 1861, shortly before Fremont was sacked by Lincoln, Fremont appointed Grant commander of the District of Southeast Missouri, and Grant made his headquarters at Cairo, Illinois. By November 1st, Grant had 20,000 men under his command, few of whom had combat experience. In the meantime, Leonidas Polk had been busy building the Columbus Bluffs into an impregnable fortress that dominated that stretch of the Mississippi. He had emplaced over a hundred pieces of artillery along the bluffs, including a big Dahlgren gun that the Southern troops nicknamed Lady Polk. The gun weighed eight tons, was rifled and breech-loading, and could fire a 128-pound projectile. To defend his citadel along the river, Polk would eventually have 19,000 Confederate troops under his command.
2: But at the end of October, John C. Fremont's attention was focused on Missouri, where the previous month, rebels under the command of Sterling Price had laid siege to the town of Lexington, and, at the Battle of the Hemp Bales, had captured its garrison of Union soldiers. After that, an anxious Fremont was concerned that Price would be reinforced by Confederate troops from Tennessee, and he thought those enemy reinforcements would cross over into southern Missouri by using Columbus as a crossing point. So on November 1st, Fremont directed Grant to make demonstrations along both sides of the Mississippi in order to disrupt the transfer of those Confederate reinforcements. Fremont, however, was mistaken there were no Confederate reinforcements being sent across the river. Nevertheless, when Fremont was sacked just a day or so later, Grant apparently used Fremont's previous orders as an excuse to launch an attack on Belmont. Although Grant later claimed he received a telegram from St. Louis on November 5th, specifying he make demonstrations in the vicinity of Columbus, there's no record of such a message, and since that was three days after Fremont was dismissed, It's likely Grant, because he was restless and eager to engage the enemy, it's likely Grant simply decided to take advantage of the confusion in St. Louis accompanying the command shakeup, and, on his own initiative, launch an attack on the Confederate camp at Belmont. Back in September, Grant had complained in a letter to his wife Julia about his frustration at Fremont for not giving him the go-ahead to tackle the Confederate position at Columbus before it became too formidable to assault. And then in October, in another letter to his wife, he had admitted his displeasure at being tied down at Cairo, saying, quote, What I want to do is advance. This was obviously the same Grant who, as a lieutenant during the war with Mexico, had been too restless to be content with staying behind with the mules and supplies, but who instead wanted to be up on the front line. In the midst of the
0: action, the Union soldiers at Cairo, although green as could be, seemed to have been as eager to get into action as was their commander and so Grant may have believed that the enemy camp at Belmont was an ideal place for his untested troops to experience their first taste of battle at any rate, he would take five infantry regiments on the ex- expedition down river. The men were all from Illinois and Iowa just over 3,000 soldiers in all, and Grant divided them into two brigades. The 27th, 30th, and 31st Illinois would be led by Brigadier General John McClernon. McClernon was an influential Democratic congressman from Illinois, and Abraham Lincoln had given him a general's commission because of his support of the war. The other brigade on the Belmont expedition, composed of the 22nd Illinois and 7th Iowa, would be led by Colonel Henry Dougherty, an experienced veteran of the regular army and commanding officer of the 22nd Illinois. In addition to the infantry, the federal force included two companies of cavalry and six guns, four six-pounders and two 12-pounders.
2: At Cairo on the evening of Wednesday, November 6th, Grant and his men piled aboard five steamboats and, escorted by the timber clads Tyler and Lexington, sailed down the Mississippi. After tying up for the night on the Kentucky shore, about 8 miles below Cairo and 11 miles north of Columbus, the expedition set off again at 6 a.m. the next morning, November 7th. and by 8 o'clock the Little Flotilla had reached its destination on the Missouri side of the Mississippi, Hunter's Landing, which was about 3 miles north of Belmont, close to the Confederate camp, But hidden from sight by a screen of tall trees. The Federal soldiers disembarked on the steep and muddy riverbank and then formed up in a nearby clearing. After sending McClernand and his staff off to scout the road to Belmont, Grant took 350 men from Doherty's brigade and posted them nearby to act as a rear guard and protect the transports from any roving Confederates.
0: Belmont itself wasn't a town, but just a steamboat landing with a log house and a shed on a flat, heavily wooded elbow of land that jutted east out into the Mississippi. There the Confederates had erected Camp Johnston, which was really just a drill field and collection of tents, and which had no significance whatsoever except that it was directly across the river from Columbus. The southern soldiers stationed at Belmont had cut down the trees around Camp Johnston and used the logs and tree branches to fashion a makeshift abatis around the place.
2: Abatis is a French word used to describe a defensive obstacle formed by felled trees or sharpened branches facing the enemy. And at least here in America, we've also heard it pronounced abatis, And anyway, this type of obstruction was used pretty frequently during the Civil War by troops of both sides.
0: Right. Well, after Grant's men disembarked and formed into ranks on the Missouri shore, the Tyler and the Lexington steamed downstream to distract the enemy batteries at Columbus and divert the Confederate gunners' attention away from the Federal infantry. The timber clads were commanded by a U.S. Navy officer, Commander Henry Walk, As Walk's gunboats steamed into view of the Confederate batteries, they were greeted by a terrific storm of cannon fire. As shells dropped all around them, the timber clads returned the enemy fire and also steamed in circles to throw off the rebels' aim. After about an hour of this, the two gunboats withdrew upstream, although the contest would be renewed twice more that day and on the timber-clad's final sally, a Confederate cannonball will pass through the side and deck of the tyler, decapitating one sailor and wounding several others.
2: While Walk was engaging the Confederate river batteries, McClernand had finished his reconnaissance, and Grant sent skirmishers and cavalry ahead on the road to Belmont. The infantry followed, and by 8.30 a.m. they were moving southeast on Hunter's Farm Road, determined to drive the enemy into the river. At Columbus, Polk had learned about the Yankee landing on the Missouri shore almost as soon as it began, thanks to his cavalry scouts, and he immediately sent an aide across the river to warn Camp Johnston. Next, he summoned Gideon Pillow to his headquarters for a strategy session. Polk assumed the federal landing was just a feint, designed to to distract him and divert troops across the Mississippi While the main enemy attack came from the Kentucky side of the river and fell on Columbus. Polk had been anticipating just such an attack on his fortress on the bluffs for quite some time. And so when Polk got word that the Yankees had landed above Belmont, he ordered Pillow to take four regiments regiments—the 12th, 13th, 21st, and 22nd Tennessee across the river to reinforce Camp Johnston. But the Bishop General committed the bulk of his men to defending Columbus, placing them to protect the gun batteries, or sending them out to secure the roads to the north and east. At first, Polk simply never considered that the real objective of the enemy landing really was Belmont. After all, the place was militarily worthless, since once the Yankees occupied the place, they would be blown to smithereens by the big guns directly across the river at Columbus.
0: But the objective of the Yankee operation really was Belmont, and Colonel James C. Tappan, the Confederate officer commanding at Camp Johnston, prepared to repel the enemy attack. Tappan had his own 13th Arkansas, the 1st Mississippi Cavalry Battalion, and the six guns of the Watson Battery. When he received word of the enemy landing, Tappan sent two companies of the Mississippi Cavalrymen towards Hunter's Landing. Then he placed two guns and one company of infantry in a field in back of the camp, facing south, and then the other four cannon and the rest of the men were positioned about half a mile northwest along the only direct road leading from Hunter's Landing to the camp, the same road the Federal infantry were marching down.
2: Pillow and his four Tennessee regiments crossed the river and arrived at Belmont about nine o'clock bringing the total Confederate strength to around 2,700 men. Pillow took command from Tappan, deploying more skirmishers up the Hunter's Farm Road, then recalling the two guns and infantry from the position behind the camp and consolidating all the troops on hand in one defensive line northwest of Belmont. However, Pillow, for some reason, didn't like the line that Tappan had arranged and he repositioned the men so that instead of being sheltered in the edge of the woods, they were in an open cornfield, fully exposed to the advancing Yankees, who themselves could now benefit from the cover of the trees. At any rate, the Federal cavalry and skirmishers soon ran into the Confederate pickets and pushed them back.
0: Across the Federal line of advance, two miles from Belmont, lay a marshy area which had water four feet deep in some places. At the marshy area Confederate resistance stiffened as the Yankees ran into rebel skirmishers who had advanced to support the cavalry pickets and in response grant had his column deploy into a half-mile long line of battle docherty's two regiments were on the left and mcclernand's three on the right as the federals pushed forward through the mud and trees the firing picked up as they began to encounter more Confederate infantry As the skirmishing grew in intensity, the Yankees pressed on, groping blindly through the heavy timber for the main enemy defensive line.
2: By 11 a.m., or perhaps a bit earlier, all the Confederate skirmishers had been driven back. Close behind them came the Federal Infantry Regiments, with the 30th and 31st Illinois in the lead. Out in the open, on a low ridge, the main Confederate defensive line, facing west, awaited them the Rebel right was anchored by the 12th Tennessee, to their left was the 13th Arkansas, and the 22nd Tennessee held the center. Next in line was the 21st Tennessee, and then on the left flank was the 13th Tennessee. As the Rebel skirmishers retreated out of the woods and rejoined their regiments, the steadily advancing Federals came to the edge of the timber, and there, under cover of the trees, they started to fire on the main Confederate line, As the battle developed, the rebels, out in the open, fared much worse than did Grant's men, who for the most part benefited from the cover of the trees at the edge of the forest.
0: As the Yankees came up and the opposing lines traded volley after volley of musketry, some of the Confederates soon began to run dangerously low on ammunition. Pillow decided that with ammo running short, it was time for a bayonet charge all along the southern line. But although carried forward bravely, the Confederate bayonet charge was repulsed, and Grant's men, sensing victory, pressed forward as the rebels gave way and fell back. Shortly before 2 p.m., with their main defensive line broken, the Confederates were conducting a stubborn fighting withdrawal back to Camp Johnston and the protection of the Abatee.
2: Soon, all five of Grant's regiments ringed Camp Johnston, where the desperate Southerners, with their backs to the river, were prepared to make their last stand. But the Yankees surging forward through the Abatee were not to be denied, and the Confederates, many of whom were completely out of ammunition by this point, broke and were driven from the camp, escaping along the river bank. As the charging Federals rushed in to claim their prize, they ignored the fleeing enemy soldiers, and instead gave their full attention to ransacking Camp Johnston. About 2 p.m., all firing ceased as Grant's men started to celebrate their victory. McClernand even gave in to his basic political instincts and gave a little patriotic speech in the captured enemy camp. But even while McClernand was up on his stump, many of the Northerners laid down their arms and started rummaging through the enemy tents, searching for loot. As Nathaniel Cheers Hughes, Jr. describes the scene in his book The Battle of Belmont, Grant Strikes South, The joy of the Union troops in Camp Johnston knew no bounds. A carnival spirit prevailed. They shouted and cheered, compared trophies, and went about shaking hands and congratulating one another. These men, who six hours before scarcely knew the sound of a volley, looked about at their comrades, their faces black as coal miners from biting cartridges. They felt like veterans." They may have been bloodied veterans, but Grant knew they were no longer a fighting force. His soldiers had become demoralized from their victory. Efforts to have the men abandon their loot and reform were futile. To regain control, Grant ordered Camp Johnston burned immediately. Field-grade officers carried torches and set the fires themselves. End quote. And sadly, it seems that in the confusion and rushing about to fire the camp, some wounded Confederate soldiers sheltering in some of the tents may have gone unnoticed and been consumed by the flames.
0: Meanwhile, the Confederates, just 800 or so yards away across the river on the bluffs at Columbus, realized that with the camp ablaze, they could safely bombard the enemy without endangering their compatriots so the rebel gunners soon let loose with shot and shell. When the first shell landed in the middle of the drill field, that, along with the flames consuming Camp Johnston, brought the Federal soldiers' wild celebration to an abrupt and sobering halt. The men fell into formation and marched quickly away from the camp and back into the sheltering woods. But even before Camp Johnston had fallen, Leonidas Polk had seen that matters were turning against Pillow, and he had given orders that more Confederate troops be ferried across the river. The first of those reinforcements to cross the Mississippi was the 11th Louisiana, the 15th Tennessee, and some cavalry. Polk himself eventually brought over two additional regiments. The southern reinforcements landed just north of Camp Johnston. There, they joined parts of the 13th Arkansas and 13th and 22nd Tennessee that Pillow and Tappan had managed to rally along the riverbank. Altogether, the Confederate force that set out inland to give the victorious Yankees a bloody nose numbered about 1,500 men.
2: As the Federals moved away from Camp Johnston, they'd formed a new column, with McClernand in the lead and Doherty bringing up the rear, and were marching northwest back to their transports when the resurgent Confederates ran straight into Doherty's right flank. Taken by surprise, Doherty and his men scrambled to form a new line of battle, but the troops were exhausted and there was considerable confusion. The two forces exchanged volleys there in the woodland until a rebel bayonet charge broke through Doherty's line. Doherty himself went down with a shattered leg and was captured. The rest of the Yankee rear guard fled north through the woods. Meanwhile, McClernand's part of the column had run smack into another Confederate detachment that was astride Hunter's Farm Road. As those northern troops were caught between the enemy behind them and this other rebel force blocking their way back to the transports, many of them wanted to surrender. But as Grant later remembered, he calmly announced that, quote, we had cut our way in and could cut our way out just as well. It seemed a new revelation to officers and men. End quote.
0: The beleaguered Federals managed to knock a hole in the Confederate line and then fought their way through to the landing. As they started to board the waiting steamboats, the pursuing Southerners fired on them from the forest edge. Grant had gone alone to check on the 350 men he'd originally left a short distance away as a guard for the transports, but he found that the detachment had already left, withdrawing with the rest of the Federal force. Making his way back to the landing, Grant came within 50 yards of some enemy troops, but none of the rebel soldiers took the opportunity to fire on him. But by the time Grant reached the river, he discovered that the steamboats had already cast off. A plank was quickly extended from the Bell Memphis onto the shore, and Grant's horse slid down the muddy bank on its hindquarters, stepped onto the plank, and trotted on board.
2: As night fell and the Federal ships steamed back upriver, they stopped at Bird's Point to pick up a detachment that had gotten lost during the chaotic withdrawal and wandered north up the Missouri shore. And with that, with the last of the Union soldiers safely aboard, Grant's force left Missouri and went back to Cairo.
0: At the Battle of Belmont, Grant lost about 90 killed, between 320 and 400 wounded, and 100 missing. The 7th Iowa and 22nd Illinois suffered especially heavily, both regiments losing 31 men killed and both suffering over 70 wounded. The Confederates' casualties were 105 killed, 419 wounded, and 117 missing.
2: Both Polk and Grant claimed victory at Belmont but Grant's claim seems, um, a bit thin, since he left the enemy in possession of the field, and he had to fight his way back to his transports. But it's unclear just what Grant hoped to achieve by attacking Belmont, other than satisfying his own need to be doing something, and perhaps giving a portion of his command some combat experience. The battle brought Grant to Abraham Lincoln's attention. And although Grant's star started to rise from that point on, some Northerners, especially some soldiers who fought at Belmont, criticized Grant for fighting an unnecessary battle. One Illinois soldier confided in his diary, Grant says that he achieved a victory and accomplished the object of his expedition. It may be so, the latter part of it, but almost everyone here doubts the story. He says his object was to threaten Columbus to keep them from sending reinforcements to Price. Well, he has threatened them, had a fight, and why they can't send reinforcements now, as well as before, is more than I know. I never will believe that it was necessary to sacrifice, two as good regiments as there were in the West, to accomplish all that I can see has been done at this time. End quote.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Battle of Belmont, Grant Strikes South by Nathaniel Cheers Hughes, Jr.
2: As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: And then for our 600th like on Facebook, we want to give a special shout out to Trevor P. Thanks, Trevor.
2: And big thank yous to Paul T. from Australia and Richard L. from the UK for their donations this past week. And Tracy and I noticed that all of the donations we've received lately have come from Australia and the UK. So we really appreciate the support and encouragement of our overseas listeners. Thanks, guys.
0: And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to A History Podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when we look at blue and gray diplomacy. But until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.